Good morning, church. Me hearties. Good morning. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. We're studying through this last book of the Bible written in the first century to first century Christians who are experiencing severe persecution at the hand of the Romans. And uh, some of you are joining us late in this study, and <clears throat> I just want to rev- remind you, some of the, all of you, but uh, help those of you who are just joining us, how to, to look at the book, how it's organized. Just an outline of it is helpful. It's a collection of four visions, or we might say, according to a music analogy, four movements of one symphony. First movement is from chapters one to four. And then roughly from 4 to 17 is the second one. And then uh, 17 to 21 is the third one. And uh, 21 is the fourth one. And then uh, chapter 1, the first part of chapter 1, chapter 22, those are, that's the intro and the conclusion. So you have an intro and a conclusion. You have four movements or four visions. And those divisions are indicated by these words, in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. It's written very artistically uh, so that uh, the people could follow along. And we're in the middle of this third vision or this third movement of this symphony. And the whole symphony can be called Jesus Wins. We're in the third movement of it. It's a long one. Chapter 4, chapter 17. And within that long movement, that long chapter, there are three sets of seven. Now, we've learned the significance of these numbers. Basically, three and seven and ten and twelve, they all have to do with completeness. Thousand is big. Basically, all you need to know. And six is imperfection or the the, the number of man-centeredness. And so, in this, in the middle of this of this uh, book and the longest movement, the longest vision, chapters 4 to 17 are these three sets of seven. We've studied most of it already. Seven seals, seals on chapters of a, of a book. And there's only one who was able to open that seal. That was the lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's controlling all of history. That's what that meant. And then the three, uh, and then uh, uh, seven trumpets, trumpets of judgment, announcing judgment coming on the wicked, on all the enemies of Christ and his church. And now we're concluding a third, a study of a third set of seven, seven bowls, seven bowls of wrath. But there's a difference. <clears throat> In these seven, I mean, all of it has to do with God's perfect plan. All of these seven has to do with God's being in control. Jesus wins. Jesus is going to bring judgment on all the wicked. But whereas those first two sevens, the seven seals and the seven trumpets, are mainly warnings against those who continue to rebel against Jesus Christ. This is what is going to come on you. This third set of seven, the seven bowls, even though there's a bowls of wrath, these are of peculiar comfort and encouragement to the people of God. 
because in the study of these seven bowls, they've been interrupted by the songs of God's people. There's a song at the beginning, there's a song at the end, and there's a song right here in the, me- in the, me- in the middle. A song of the triumph of God's people. What I want you to understand from every time we open this book is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if Jesus Christ has taken away your sins and the wrath due for your sins, you're on the winning side and there is every reason to rejoice in the victory that is coming in Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Christ, then these words should be disturbing to you. But you must understand this is Christ giving you another chance. This is Christ reaching out to you and calling you to repentance. This book was written for the encouragement of Christ's church. That's why we're studying it. It was written to strengthen the people of God for facing suffering. And we're in the midst of suffering. We're approaching even more severe persecution. This is a book that needs to be given back to the church of Jesus Christ. Not to be viewed as something that can only be understood as by professionals or some kind of code book. This is a book for you. I want you to prepare yourself as we read verses 1 to 8 of chapter 15. Prepare yourself, Christian. To be encouraged. We begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There is an old hero's tale called Horatius at the Gate. It occurred in the fifth century Rome. You remember I I used uh, Augustine's City of God a few weeks ago to illustrate how uh, those Christians who are rooted in the gospel are not afraid of the times. They understand that the city of God is being built regardless of what is happening around them. 
That occurred, Augustine wrote that book in the fifth century of Rome. He he wrote that book as that nation, which had been a Christian nation, was declining. As the vandals were at the gate, he wrote, the city of God will triumph. Well, here is a tale that comes from that same period of time, Horatius at the gate. The Etruscans, another enemy of Rome, uh, thought that they could run on Rome. And so they they were going to cross the Tiber River going across a bridge handily provided for them by the Romans. They were just going to run across that bridge and take over Rome. But Horatius, sometimes called Horatius the Cyclops because he had already lost one eye in battle. He looks down with that one eye and he sees that bridge can be easily defended. It can be defended by three men. Just put three men at the gate because it doesn't matter how many hundreds and thousands are trying to come over here. They have to go through that one gate, that narrow bridge. Three of us can guard it while the rest of you go down and you tear down the bridge, drop the bridge. They won't be able to come after us anymore. Who will go with me? Two other guys get on either side of him. They stand at the gate and the one by one, those Etruscans try to come across the bridge and they pop them down. They cut their heads off. They stab them in the heart and they throw them off left and right. And then they hear the crackling of the bridge is starting to fall. And the the higher up say, retreat. And the other two took off. But Horatius continued to fight. He was not going to let one person get across that place. He would have been put at the gate. He was going to stand at the gate. That was his duty. Stand at the gate. And he did until the bridge fell And uh, he swam safely to the other side. He was so wounded he had to go into retirement. Anyway, he he remained a hero. Some of you may have memorized at least this line from that famous poem by Thomas Babington Macaulay, a poem that Winston Churchill memorized, all 70 stanzas of it. He memorized it, he said, so that he could build courage. Winston Churchill quoted it often, especially this line. Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon the earth, death cometh sooner or late. And how can men die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of the gods? Now, Horatius is held up as a brave warrior. Not because he went against the troops. Not because he led a great campaign. But because he stood at the place he was called until his work was finished. He stood. He stood at the gate. You know, most of the Christian life is about just standing up where you are. We've been hearing these powerful sermons from Nehemiah, from, uh, from Todd and Barton and tonight from Dan. And they've emphasized over and over again, here are the gates. Each one was attended, uh, assigned a gate. They just went to that gate. They just showed up at that gate. Some of you think the Christian, like you're not a great Christian because you haven't done something what other people call great. But your calling is just to stand where you are, where God has appointed you. Stand as a first grader. If he's called you to be a college student, stand. If he's called you to be a mom, show up and stand there. He's called you to be a dad. He's called you to be a sanitation worker. He's called you to be a teacher. He's called you to be a lawyer. Show up and stand there. 
That's your calling. Stand at the gate until Jesus says your work is done. If you're bedridden, stand at the gate praying until Jesus says your work is done. That's our calling. And how are we going to do it? Not only what, with what manner should we do it, but what is the empowerment for doing it? And it's, that's what our text is about. We may do it. We must do it. We will do it confidently and obediently because of Jesus. Jesus is going to win the battle, not only in this world. He's going to win the battle against our flesh. He's going to win the battle through us. We stand confidently and we stand with Jesus. That first point comes from verses 1 to 4. We stand confidently. How, do you, how can you stand confidently against an enemy? You can stand confidently against an enemy when you know <clears throat> that the enemy is going to be defeated and you're going to be on the winning side. That's the two points that Jesus assures us of in these first four verses. He tells us there will be complete justice, and I'm going to give you the words by, that you're going to sing at the great day when Jesus wins. He gives us assurance of complete justice. He gives us a final song. You see, the assurance of complete justice is found in verse 1. Also, it's repeated in verse 8. The wrath of God is finished at the end of verse 8. Seven angels, the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. That word is, that word translated finished is complete. It is exhausted. God's work is perfectly completed. His bringing justice against all of his enemies will be completed. Again, that's reinforced by seven, the number seven. Look at verse one. Here, the seven angels will bring out the seven plagues. Seven angels. It's just the, the number of perfection. All of the power needed to bring justice on this world, God will bring it. Seven plagues. Remember when we studied the plagues in the book of Exodus? We noted that each one of those plagues was designed to humiliate, to expose, to defeat one of the gods one of the idols of Egypt, the God of fertility, the God of the Nile, the God of commerce, the God of, the God of birth, the God of death, the God of, of, uh, of, of success in crops, the God of rain, the God of insects, the God of animals. Every God that they worshiped gave credit to for bringing them success and sustenance. God attacked it with a plague. Whatever false gods there are in this culture, whatever idols there are in your life, God says by the end of time, everyone will be exposed as impotent, as unable, as a false prop, a charlatan. There's the assurance of perfect justice. Enough power to do it, and a comprehensive desolation of everything, every force, every worldview that lifts its fist against God. So we can confidently endure because we know complete justice is coming. And then we're given the song that we're going to sing. It's this <clears throat> called the Song of Moses. 
in verse uh, 3. And it comes from, it's lifted from Exodus 15, uh, 1 to 18, the whole chapter. And, and, and Moses taught his people to sing that after the enemies of God, the Egyptians, were defeated at the Red Sea. They were, God took them over. God took the people of Israel over on dry land. Egyptians tried to follow. They were swallowed up by the waters. And Moses said, let's celebrate God's victory with this hymn. Now, obviously, it's only a line or two quoted here because it was a prompt to the memories of these faithful Jewish people who had worshipped all along. They knew this song from memory. So it'd be like me saying, let's sing Amazing Grace. And you would say, how sweet the sound. Or great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, you would say. You can, you can fill that in automatically because it's been cut deeply into your minds. So he said, here is the song of Moses. And he's reminding the people of God of this song of Moses because he wants them to sing it. He wants them to recall it and sing it over and over again, especially as the heat of persecution builds up. The more threat you find against your, against your following Christ internally or externally, the more you need to sing this song. I'm going to change the metaphor a little bit and say, imagine this song is medicine. One time somebody gave me a, uh, a, a bottle of, uh, it looked like a bottle that you'd get from the, from the uh, pharmacy. And uh, <clears throat> she said, here, I'm giving you this prescription. I thought, oh my goodness, this is probably a federal setup. I'm going to get busted for taking these illegal drugs. And then I got it back to my office and it was full of Bible promises. When, you're, when, when your soul is sick, open this up, take out a Bible promise. It's a wonderful little tool. Well, I want to give you a similar tool. When you're frantic, when you feel like <clears throat> that uh, you're surrounded on all sides by, the, by enemies, when you don't know what to do, when you're tempted to get angry, you're tempted to worry, you're tempted to compromise, I want you to take your gospel medicine. I'm going to give you three pills that go into this gospel cocktail. And you need to take these three pills. They're in these three stanzas of this song. The first one is, Jesus Christ is Lord. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Excuse me. When When you are overwhelmed, you sit down and you take that first pill. And you remember, wait a minute. Life isn't totally out of control. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then wait there just a minute. You've got to add another pill to that cocktail. And that is that Christ is going to bring all nations to bow at his feet. And nations includes all of his enemies. You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. It doesn't matter what's happening politically, Lord, in my country, in my world. It doesn't matter how terrifying this seems to be. You've told me all the nations are going to be brought to your feet. No one's going to topple you from your throne. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge of everything in my life. Jesus Christ is in charge of everything in this world and all of history. And then here's the most important pill. You need to take it before the other two will work. And that is the atoning righteousness of Christ. Your righteous acts have been revealed. Oh, Lord Jesus, 
You are king of all things. Oh, Lord Jesus, I take comfort in the fact that you're going to bring all nations to bow before you, all my enemies, every disease, every evil in this world, they're all going to bow before you. And Lord, I recognize that in this, whatever this problem is, I probably have a hand in it. Or Lord, I'm in this fix because I've messed up so terribly. I've sinned so terribly. Or I've at least contributed to the broken condition of the world. I submit myself to the atoning righteousness of Christ alone. I don't deserve to be delivered, but you by your grace have delivered me. Let me make it simpler. The the ancient church taught its people to pray the prayer that I just told you, the content of the prayer anyway, but they, they did it with simpler lines. Sometimes called the Kyrie eleison. Jesus, or Lord, have mercy on me. Maybe you've heard that in a Gregorian chant. Maybe you've heard that from Mr. Mister in the 1980s. Kyrie eleison, on the road that I must travel. Kyrie eleison, have mercy on me. Well, here was, the, here was the song that the ancient church has always taught its people to say, when you don't know what else to pray, when you find your mind wandering, when you have these gaps in prayer, this prayer is always appropriate. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That encaptures everything. Lord, you're, in, you're, you're my boss Jesus, you are the Savior, the God who became my human Savior. Christ, you are, the, you are the promised Messiah. Lord Jesus Christ, you're everything that I need. So have mercy on me. I'm always in need of mercy. I'm in need of mercy from the, the disease that is attacking my body or my loved one's body. I need mercy in this world that seems bent on my destruction. I need your mercy, and I need your mercy as a sinner. Apply the atoning righteousness of Christ to me. It's the most important prayer that you could learn. To confidently endure as you stand at the place where God has given you to stand. Second point from this passage is we not only endure confidently, but we endure obediently. We endure obediently, verses 5 to 8. But I I want you to see that that obedience is found in our union with Christ. That, that, That the primary obedience for finishing well is worship. The reason, the reason John only had to quote the first couple of lines from the Song of Moses is that the, that the faithful Jewish people who had worshipped at the synagogue knew this hymn because it was sung every Sabbath evening. The people of God from all uh, from, from the beginning of their formal organization have been worshiping morning and evening in the Sabbath day or the Lord's day. All through the Old Testament sacrifices, morning and evening sacrifices twice on the Sabbath day. And we have psalms for morning worship 
and psalms for evening worship. Psalm 3 is a psalm for morning worship. Psalm 4 is a psalm for evening worship. Psalm 92 is a psalm for the Sabbath day. And it says, uh, uh, it is a truly wonderful thing to uh, give thanks to you in the morning and celebrate your love at night. The Christian church has always worshipped morning and evening. We have in our hymnal a body of morning hymns and a body of evening hymns. Christian hymnals have always been that way. And so here the Lord has given you graciously worship services, morning and evening, to surround your day. And not because you're going to earn brownie points for coming to church more, but because he wants to cut deep grooves in your mind and heart for finishing well in the Christian life. And so these people were equipped, he says, they, they, they were ready to fight by quoting a hymn that was cut deeply in their minds because they sang it every, Lord, every Sabbath evening. The first act of obedience that will, that will ensure that we stand faithfully where we are regardless of persecution and temptation, the first act of obedience is worship on the Lord's day. Morning and evening. I had a an elder once who was a an engineer who uh, had just read Malcolm Gladwell's book, and you know he has that that law in there of the ten thousand hours, which in itself is debatable. But my friend uh, took that rule and uh, applied it to the Christian life. And he said, if you're going to be a master of the Christian life, according to Malcolm Gladwell's uh, theory, then it's going to take 10,000 hours. And he said, uh, here's how you can get there. If you just worship morning and evening, two and a half hours per week, it'll take you 80 years. If you add Sunday school, it'll take you 57 years. If you add 30 minutes of Bible study every day, it'll take you 33 years. Well, let's cut it in a half. Let's say it's 5,000 hours. Then by the time you're 15, if you read your Bible just a few minutes a day, if you attend Sunday school, morning and evening worship every week, by the age of 15, you could be someone who was seriously grounded, could have deep grooves cut in your mind and heart, the Christian faith and the gospel. Some of us find it difficult to give even one hour of worship per week and to ask to come back on an evening. Well, that's just way too much. You know, we're going to be worshiping for the rest of eternity. If you, you could build a little muscle by just putting in two and a half hours a week. It might help you for eternity. I know it's a hard thing to turn around and come back in the evening. But I've seen it over and over, my friends, as a pastor. Those who make it a priority to begin and end their day, to book in their day with worship, especially when the Lord's Supper is served, they are the ones who thrive, who thrive through college, who finish well in the Christian life. So he begins his call to obedience by quoting a hymn that they knew from their evening worship. And then he says, here is, here is the confidence you have when you're obeying with Christ. That is, when you're following Christ, then notice you're going to follow one who, is, who has a golden sash. 
you're following one who has uh, clean linen. That golden sash is a reference to his kingship. It's, and it's these angels who are carrying out his kingly will. And the, that linen is his priesthood. That's, that's his, his atoning mercy for us. So we have this confidence that all judgment is going to be brought against all of our enemies. So there is never a time then that we should be intimidated to compromise. There is never a time that we should think, I should just give in here because it's going to make things go easier. No, you must imagine yourself to be surrounded by these angels representing the kingship of Christ, seven golden sashes around there. There is no reason that you should ever view yourself as to be weakened to the point that you have to compromise. And furthermore, you are someday going to be ushered into this sanctuary as we find in the end of the passage. Not because of your good deeds, but because you have always stood up in Christ. And even to the end, you are trusting his righteousness by which you will enter heaven. And those who enter heaven are those who finish well. Those who finish well are those who triumph in Christ's final victory. It says he's not, going to, he's not going to welcome us into heaven to rejoice with him until he has defeated every one of our foes. You want to be on that side. Now, some of you are, are in the deep throes of suffering. Some of you are suffering with a deadly disease. Some of you are thinking God has abandoned me and you're thinking God has turned his back on you. And it's at this point that Christ calls you to stand under his righteousness in confidence of his future promises. Some of you are facing a juncture in your life where you think, am I going to go with Christ? Or am I going to go with the world? Or am I going to try to have a foot in both Christ says, look, look ahead. You want to be on the winning side, on the victorious side. I am, I'm telling you right now, these are the words that are going to be sung by those who walk with me, no matter what it costs them in this world. Jesus is singing this song to you, to woo you into faithfulness and endurance. There's an old Jewish story about a little boy who was not so motivated to continue with his Jewish studies, his learning his Hebrew letters and learning the stories of the Old Testament. His name was Mordecai. And uh, Mordecai's parents had tried everything in the world to, to get him to, to continue on in his studies. They had threatened him. They had punished him. They had, they had bribed him. Nothing was working. So they brought him to the rabbi and just dropped him off and said, you do something with him. And the old story is that the rabbi took little Mordecai and put his head with his ear onto his chest. And he just held him there and patted his head for a while until the boy was completely still. And all he could hear was the heartbeat of that loving, gentle rabbi. And then the story was 
that when Mordecai went home, they never had any more trouble with his doing his lessons that the rabbi had prescribed. This is what Jesus is doing for you in this book. He pulls your head to his chest and he says, I want you to close off your ears from all this cacophony of voices that are surrounding you, your peers, your, your, your social media, the news, all of these threatening, conflicting voices. I want you to close your ears to them for a while and I want you to listen only to my heartbeat, which comes from my word. I am speaking to you. And I'm telling you, I am the Lord Jesus Christ who has mercy on you, a sinner. And you, if you hold on to me, you will win with me. Endure in faithful obedience. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the, the resources you have given to us in abundance with, that we can use in complete freedom. The ability to worship, to read your word, to speak about Christ, to gather any time we wish. We ask you would forgive us for not using these resources faithfully, uh, that we might be all the stronger in standing for you. Please help us to hear your heartbeat that we might be the more conformed to Jesus himself. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. God, God's people said, amen.